0: Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and as it's already been mentioned, we are on the topic this morning of worry, anxiety, and as you look around our culture, phobias and worries and anxieties, panic attacks and stress, you know, just seems to be at epidemic levels, doesn't it? I mean, it really is a billion-dollar industry, as psychiatrists and psychologists and Biblical counselors and pastors and others who are in the people business all over our country are constantly sitting down and looking at people overcome with worry, overcome with stress about the pressures of life. Without a doubt, this issue of anxiety, disorders, and worry affects everyone. It affects us all. It affects us personally. We all can be tempted, but it also affects us in our families and relationally. We all know someone who carries great burdens of anxiety and worry. But thank God, thank God the Bible addresses this topic. When we gather to sit under the hearing of the Word of God, this is not just some mere academic exercise. This is not just some religious uh, feeling we're trying to conjure up. We're turning to the Word of God for help in our life, right? And thank God He addresses the issues of life. Christianity is, is practical if it's anything. And so today we will see that in spades. I want to define worry as we begin because we must differentiate between worry and proper concern, right? Proper care for certain things in life. And there is a big difference. Worry goes beyond concern to a perpetual uneasiness, to an unsettled feeling of fear and anxiety, where you're unable to really function properly because of the weight of this concern, for example, wearing your seatbelt is not worry. Not going out of your house for fear of an accident, that's worry. That's anxiety at, a, at another level. And of course, if it's bad enough, if it's deep enough, if it's frequent enough, uh, the stress of worry can leave a person where they can't eat, they can't sleep, they can't work, they can't function. It'll leave a person uh, just entirely stressed out. And what's next if they're stressed? What's next? Health problems, right? Physical health problems will follow. Now we got something else to worry about, right? And it just kind of snowballs. These kind of things accumulate. Where there's stress, where there's health problems, inevitably there will be life problems. There will be relationship problems. There will be strain in the marriage and strain at home and strain at work. All of these things many, many times can be, can be traced right back to worry and anxiety that wasn't properly dealt with. Everything has a starting point, folks. Nobody just wakes up one day in the deepest, darkest depression imaginable. It always started somewhere. And the key for us as believers is to you know nip it in the bud is to get out in front of some of these things because if the, if we don't, if we don't respond biblically to the things that happen to us in life, then they will accumulate and they will take us places that we never imagined possible. But again, I want to say thank God that he addresses these issues. Thank God that jesus that Jesus spoke to the issue of worry, and he did so often in his itinerant. Ministry. Now let's acknowledge, as even one of the songs did, let's just confess right up front, no matter how happy-go-lucky your personality might be, no matter how optimistic of a personality you might have, let's just confess that we all worry from time to time. And if we don't worry from time to time, we can at least acknowledge that we are all tempted to worry. We are all drawn to consider what we might worry about. It doesn't take much paying attention to realize there's no shortage of reasons to worry. we could spend the whole sermon up here just talking, I mean, I could get you worried if I wanted to. (laughs) We could just sit up here and talk about all of the laundry list of reasons why we could potentially worry. But today I want to give you reasons not to worry. You turn on Fox and CNN and whatever news outlet, you'll get your reasons to worry. But today we're going to have reasons not to worry. I think you got to turn to the Bible to get that list, right? Does that sound good to you this morning? Do you want to hear something this morning that says, oh, there's a reason not to worry? Go with me to Matthew 6 and verse 25. And let's read the text. The title and the outline of the sermon is Eight Reasons Not to Worry. You look for them as I read the passage. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Literally, tomorrow will worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Six times the Greek word for worry is used in this passage. Clearly it is the topic, it is the theme. But beyond that, Jesus is really giving us reasons not to worry. Implied in all of this is really here a cure for worry. An alleviation of this debilitating disease of the soul. My goal this morning is ambitious. The goal of this sermon is to cure worry in Kerrville Bible Church. I want to bring a soul cure, medicine of God to your soul if you are here today and this is an issue, this is a, a challenge for you. I believe that if we will hear and believe and embrace and practice what this passage sets before us, that it will cure worry in our lives. That is how powerful the Word of God is. So, eight reasons not to worry. Eight reasons not to worry. Number one, because life is about more than groceries and garments. Verse 25, life is about more than groceries and garments. In fact, groceries and garments are the baseline issues of life. These are the mundane, basic matters of life. They're not life, they're just the means to really have life in some part. Groceries and garments are never the highest priority. Because life is not bound up in them. If we were animals, then food would be our life. That's basically, you know, that in reproduction is about all that animals live for. It's all they focus on. But we're not animals. We're made in God's image. That's what's implied here in this. When Jesus says, at the end of verse 25, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's taking us back to Genesis 1 and 2. He's taking us back to our headwaters, how God made us, and reminding us that we're made in God's image, that we're made to have a relationship with God, right? Implied in that question is, Life is not bound up in groceries and garments. Life is bound up in your relationship with God. We are not here to eat. We are here to serve God. Eating is a means to an end. Eating is fuel so that I have energy to worship. Class, what did we learn this morning? Worship, walk, work, and witness. That's what food is for. That's why I exist, to glorify God. See, this is a paradigm shift to get our eyes off of the physical and on the spiritual, off the earthly and on the heavenly. That's why we should not be worried about life. We don't have a reason to worry about it because life is more than these things. So much more. Now, life is not less than these things, right? But it is so much more than these things. We can say then that life is bound up in serving God. Life is bound up in knowing God and walking with God and having a relationship with Him. Paul said the same thing in Romans fourteen seventeen. He said, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Some of us need to hear that reminder this morning. We get caught up in the things that we think are life, but they're really not life. And then we neglect the thing that is life, God, because we're so distracted by the things that don't bring life. So, borrowing from Jesus' method of a rhetorical question, I ask you a rhetorical question or two. I think if Jesus were here today, since we're not living hand-to-mouth like his listeners were, right? Since we're not scratching and clawing for mere survival like his were. Yeah, food, drink, and clothing were pressing matters of their heart. We're not in that category, so let's... Jump to the 21st century and if Jesus were here, might he ask these rhetorical questions. Isn't life about more than eating out and drinking wine and shopping for shoes and clothes and gadgets? Isn't life more than this? When you go to a major mall in our major cities and you watch the behavior there and you would begin to wonder, isn't life about more than your kid's future? Isn't life about more than where your kids are going to go to college and their vocation and who they might marry? Isn't life more than that? Isn't life about more than mortgages and mutual funds? Isn't it about more than get a good job and get married and have kids and retire and do what I want? Isn't it about more than that? Jesus would ask. Isn't life about more than access to good doctors and a prescription drug plan and Social Security And a pastor to do your funeral? I mean, isn't life about more than these things? Of course they are. Of course it is. And because it is, this is reason number one, not to worry. Because our life is not bound up in the things of this world. Reason number two, not to worry. It's because God feeds the birds. Verse 26. God feeds the birds all day, every day. For thousands of years, thousands and millions and maybe billions of birds, God feeds them. And the word for feed here in verse 26 is a beautiful word. It's an intimate word. It's the idea of nourishing. It's the idea of even nursing. This is not just like, hey, I'm tossing you a bag of seed over here. I mean, this is like a very intimate thing that God is, is very much aware of all of his creation. And Jesus says in verse 26, look at the birds. Consider the birds, all right? Creation is here as a school for us. It's a classroom. Get your eyes open. Look up in the sky. Look in the tree. Look at those birds, he says. Um, I imagine as he teaches this outside on a hillside that there are birds right there flying by at the moment. And And he goes into... Three activities of the men of his day. So verse 26, he is addressing his male listeners. Because it was their job to sow, reap, and gather into barns. This was an agricultural society. They were farmers. This was what life consisted of day after day, year after year. We sow seed, we reap the harvest, and we store it for future use. And he says, look at the birds. They don't do any of this. You don't ever see a bird plowing a field. You don't ever see a bird planting seeds. You don't ever see a bird reaping a harvest or putting it away in a barn somewhere. And he says, yeah, your heavenly father. I love that. He's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to followers here. He's speaking to people who are rightly related to God the Father like we are as Christians. He says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Continuous action. And then the rhetorical question. Are you not worth much more than they? The point is, birds do none of this, and they eat every single day. In fact, if you watch a bird very much, they pretty much eat all the time. That's all they're really ever doing. They're either flying or sitting and looking at each other or eating. You know, they're just pecking and and, and searching all the time. Now, think about this. Birds, okay? Now, in Luke, Jesus calls them ravens. And for a Jewish person, ravens were unclean birds. So it's not just birds. It's unclean birds, And I think of birds, and most of them are nasty. Most of them are worthless. Most of them are ugly. Grackles, Oh, noisy, wretched birds pooping all over our cars and our sidewalks, right? He picks birds of all things. And he says, your heavenly father is continuously feeding them. Aren't you worth more? Aren't you superior to a grackle? Of course you are. That's the point. We're human beings. We're made in his image. We bear the stamp of God on us. We don't have feathers. We stand upright. We're intelligent, emotional, willful creatures of God. And beyond that, He's our Heavenly Father. So now He's speaking not just to human beings, but to, in our dispensation, to Christians. What He's saying here is, you have a reason not to worry basically because of this. Christian, you are a royal son or daughter of the King. Why are you going to worry when your Heavenly Father owns everything? When the earth is the Lord's and all it contains? When He has every means at His disposal to take care of you, why worry? You have a seat at the table. You belong. You're in the family. He's your Heavenly Father. And these are your brothers and sisters. And sometimes your Father will use your brothers and sisters to provide for you. You have no need to worry. You're in the family of God. This Father will never forsake you. This Father will never leave you. This Father will never hurt you. This Father will never let you down. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. How much more valuable are you? Jesus Christ didn't die for birds. He died for us. Here's where we find our worth and our unworthiness. And here the reminder is God feeds His children. Why am I worried? Worry then is a sin. He's going to feed those which are much more valuable to Him. Reason number three. Is verse twenty-seven. The third reason not to worry is because worry doesn't work. All right, let me appeal to your pragmatism. (laughs) Let me appeal to your pragmatic side. Worry does not help. Can you just if you're a worrier, can you just can you just embrace that this morning? Look at verse twenty seven. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single moment to his lifespan? You cannot add one second to the length of your life by the great energy of worry. And Jesus here just takes one example among thousands, right? Among thousands of examples he could have chosen. He's talking about food and drink. He's talking about survival. He's talking about life coverage from the elements and so what's on people's minds is how am I going to live and so he takes that one example and he says you can worry about it all day long and you are not going to add one second to how long you live because that number is already fixed it's ordained of God and we're not going to change it we can influence quality of life but not quantity God has ordained that from the beginning of time The point here, verse 27, is a very important point, is it not? It's a very practical point. Worry doesn't help. So why am I doing it? Worry doesn't work. So why am I doing it? It's counterproductive. In fact, worry saps us of energy. Worry saps us of productivity. Worry saps us of mental focus. To be worried is to be distracted. It's to not be able to focus on the task at hand. And when you can't focus on the task at hand, then the task at hand doesn't get done or it gets done poorly. And then the results of that give me something to worry about. You see. In fact, worry does no good whatsoever. And in fact, we know it does much harm. Many commentators, in fact, all of the commentators on this passage said this. Worry can't add a minute to your life. But it can take some away. (laughs) In God's means, in God's sovereign plan, worry can shorten your life by creating all manner of health problems. Of course, that is the life then God had ordained. So I just ask you a very practical question. Why do you keep doing something that doesn't help and only hurts? I mean, isn't that the definition of insanity? (laughs) Why keep doing something that doesn't help and only hurts? You can't add anything to your life with worry. In fact, you will subtract from your life. Reason number four. As we move our way through these eight. The fourth reason not to worry is similar to God feeding the birds. Here it's God dresses the grass. Then we go from birds to grass. Verses 28 to 30, look at it with me. He goes back to the topic of clothing, and now he's addressing the women in his audience. Because he moves from the field and the storage up of the barns, the men's work of that day, to what was the ladies' work of that day? Making clothing. And he says in verse 28, why are you worried about clothing? Observe, consider, think about the lilies of the field. He's talking about wildflowers here. He's just talking about grass and and flowers out there. And he says, look how they grow. They do not toil. That means labor to the point of exhaustion. They don't agonize in their workplace environment. They're not straining and stressing to grow. They're not. And he says, they do not spin. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, what in the world is he talking about? Like a flower spinning? Or <laughs> so what is this? No, he's talking about taking wool and spinning it into threads that makes cloth that makes clothing. He's talking about the work of women here in providing clothing for their family. He says, "Look at one of these lilies. Just take one." It's not toiling, it's not laboring, it's not spinning yarn and wool and material to dress itself, yet I say to you that not even Solomon, King Solomon, the richest man ever, the most glorious king in Israel's history, the one who was decked out in royal robes all the time, not even Solomon and all of his glory, not just some of his glory, all of his shining fame and glory, not even Solomon is clothed himself like how many of these? One of these. One of these, God is saying, you know what? One of my flowers so far passes everything man can make. And we're all caught up in our stupid phones, (laughs) thinking this is the greatest invention ever, right? And God says, will you go look at one lily and be amazed? Be in awe. One tulip, one rose, One blue bonnet on a hillside surpasses the splendor of the richest king in Israel's history. He wants us then to consider this scene, a hillside in springtime. We don't have to go far, do we? A hillside in the hill country covered with wild flowers. Willow city loop in the spring. Consider it. Grass of the field, God clothing it, clothing it with those flowers. And all it is is transient grass. It's here today, gone tomorrow. The next drought burns it up. In fact, in their day, this grass was fuel for the furnace. It's how they started fires. It's what they used to burn in their fireplaces. The point being simply, if God is going to clothe transient fuel for the fire grass, do you not think he will dress you, his beloved child? Do you not think He will cover you and take care of your needs of clothing and shelter if He does this for mere grass? Of course He will. And of course He does. This doesn't mean we get every (laughs) article of clothing we could ever hope for or dream for. This means that God will meet the needs of His children for basic food, clothing, shelter. Reason number five Reason number five is in verse 32. So let's back up a little bit. At the end of verse 30, he admonished them, you have little faith. It's just really one word in Greek, little faith. Little faith, you know, where there's worry, there's little faith. He doesn't say no faith. You can have true faith and still worry. You can have true faith and still have doubts. In fact, that's quite normal. Normal. And so he doesn't call them unbelievers he're the, the, they're, they're related to the heavenly father he calls them little faith because wherever you have worry that's a that's a manifestation of of small faith of weak faith verse thirty one then he kind of sums it all up and you can just feel the frantic you can feel the frantic of verse thirty one can't you do not worry then saying what will we eat what will we drink what will we wear Where will my kids go to school? Who will they marry? Will they turn out okay? How will I retire? What's going to happen to my car? What's happening with my house? My health? What's the doctor going to say? What's going to happen to social security? What's going to happen to Medicare? What's, what's, who's going to be the next president? What will, right? You can just feel the frantic in this. For them, it was basic survival. Then look at verse 32. Here's our fifth reason. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. That's a stinging rebuke. Gentiles here, pagans, he's saying. He's addressing Jewish believers. He speaks of those pagan countries and peoples around them. He calls them Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and he says they eagerly pursue, they live for these things. Their thoughts and life are dominated by these things. That's all they can think about is food, clothing, shelter, stuff, gadgets, materialism. They're of the world, they live for the world. They're unbelievers, you understand. They're idolaters. These are people that are not worshiping and knowing God. They're the Gentiles. They're those outside the church. They're those outside the Christian faith. They're the atheists, the unbelievers, the materialistic idolaters of this world. And he says, this is what they live for. What's his point? What's he implying? He's implying, you are a believer. Don't be like them. This is not something, someone you want to emulate. Don't imitate Gentiles. This is how they live. You live different because you're of God. You're of Christ. Earlier in this very sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had told us not to love like the pagans. Remember that? They love only those who love them. And they greet those who only greet them. And he admonished us as disciples that don't love like that. That's how Gentiles love. And then later on in chapter 6, he admonished us to not pray like the Gentiles, who use meaningless repetition so that they might be heard for their many words. And he's saying, don't be like them. You're different. You have a father. Just tell him what you need. He already knows anyway, right? Don't love like them. Don't pray like them. Here, don't live like them. Don't be obsessed with the material. That's how Gentiles live. One commentator, Bruner, said it this way very, very apt quote here. He said, It is characteristic of the secular world to be obsessed with economic questions. Right? It's even like a presidential election slogan. It's the economy, stupid. Yeah. It is characteristic of the secular world to be obsessed with economic questions, to be almost entirely engrossed by consumer concerns, to be preoccupied with getting better and better things. End quote. Well, wow, those are the words right there. Obsessed, engrossed, preoccupied. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Coming right out of the hills, right on the hills of his previous passage, do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. Jesus reminds us that the Gentiles are all about storing up treasures on earth. And so he's using them as a rebuke to us, as a ne- negative example for us as believers. I am a child of God. I'm not going to live like the world. I'm not going to worry about the things they worry about. I mean, this is a way to learn how to live. Observe the Gentiles and do the opposite. <laughs> it's really pretty simple. Don't do what they do. Don't be obsessed with the economy. Don't be entirely engrossed in consumer concerns. Don't be preoccupied with more and more stuff. See, the fifth reason is unbelievers are consumed with worry. Don't be like them. Reason number six is the rest of verse 32. Second reason right there in that one verse. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. So he's already defined all these things, hasn't he? What are they? Food, drink, clothing. That's what he's talking about. And he says to us, "Your." there it is again. Your heavenly Father, not your stern and harsh judge, not even your creator, right, but your Father. You're sworn to provide and protect you, Father. You're committed to you more than you're committed to Him, Father. The one who loved you first before you loved him, Father. The Father who sent his son into the world to be a propitiation for our sins. The Father who sent Jesus as a gift to the world so that we would not perish but have eternal life in him. This Father. This loving God. This providing God. This rich and infinitely powerful God is your Heavenly Father and he knows. He knows the things you need. He knows all that you need. Reason number six is because our Father knows our needs. He's already pointed this out in this sermon. When we pray, we don't have to inform God because He already knows what we need. Now this is very interesting because the pagans that lived around the Jews and among the Jews did not serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob they served little gods, right? And goddesses of their day. The Greek gods and the Roman gods. And and their whole system was entirely different from biblical Christianity. See, their system was, I've got to bring gifts and offerings and sacrifices to my God, and I'm doing it to try to appease Him, to try to win His favor, to try to get Him on my side so that He'll bless my crops and my children and my flocks, right? And I've got to appease the God of war and the God of rain and the God of this and the God of that. But the problem with their whole system with these gods were arbitrary and these gods were hard to appease and you never knew if you had right and so these people lived in this terrible burden of am i viewed favorably by the gods have i done enough has it satisfied them they were always unsure in a sense they had no assurance of salvation because there was no salvation with these other gods They had no sense whatsoever of a heavenly Father who feeds them. They had no sense of personal love, of a personal God, of tender care, of watch care, of provision, of miraculous and providential provision. No, they were just living in fear all the time that the gods would not come through. Jesus is basically saying here, not so for us not so for us. We know tender, loving care. We know loving kindness. We know grace. We know provision. We know what it means to have a Heavenly Father. Reason number six, my Father knows what is best. My Father knows my needs. And we got to put those two things together. My Father knows my needs, and my Father knows what is best for me. So what this might mean is, you know, chicken wings and ramen noodles instead of Ribeye steak and $20 mac and cheese at Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Okay? Now you can get $20 mac and cheese at high dollar steakhouses. Uh, I've experienced that once in my life. (laughs) The irony of that sometimes is how delicious the chicken wings and ramen noodles actually are. But I gotta walk through life knowing that my father knows me and he knows my needs. And He knows how to meet those needs. And He knows when to say yes, and He knows when to say no. And I have to trust that. Whatever that looks like in the moment. That's the reason here Jesus is giving us not to worry is your Heavenly Father, who rules the universe, knows that you need all these things. We can extrapolate that out to all of our needs, right? All of our daily needs He knows about them. I think Paul echoed this reason. And Peter did as well. Let me share a couple of quick verses with you. Paul echoed it in Philippians 4, 6. With this command, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, your Heavenly Father, in Jesus' words. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. In fact, be anxious for absolutely nothing On the one hand, and on the other hand, take everything to God in prayer, everything He's interested in, everything He wants to hear from you about. Lay it at His feet, and do so with thanksgiving. Peter echoed echoed this, and Peter commended a life of what I'll call humble faith. This is 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you when? At the proper time. So this is a life of faith here, humbling ourselves, allowing God to exalt us, and He'll do it when the time is right. And here's the last part of this verse, and you know this, you've heard this, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Throwing your anxiety on God because to Him it is a care. To Him you are a concern. You see, here's the deal. We were not made to bear the weight of worry. We were not made to carry anxiety. God alone can carry it. And Peter is saying, if you will humble yourself and stop walking in pride and stop thinking it's all up to you and stop thinking the world revolves around you. If you will humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, God will lift you up when the time is right. And in that humbling, you just cast all of your cares on him and you lay them at his feet and you walk away from them. Of course the challenge is we take them back, right? <laughs> we get good at casting, you know? I mean, we are casting and casting and casting. But look at that, verse Peter 5, First Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Of course you do this in prayer and meditation and surrender to God. So Paul and Peter here echoing what Jesus is saying in reason number 6. That brings us right into reason number seven. Very closely related. It's verse thirty-three. Reason number seven is because our Father meets our needs. All right. Number six, He knows our needs. Number seven, He meets our needs. Look at verse thirty-three. But seek first. That's continually seek as a priority. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, what's the definition of all these things? Is it everything you ever wanted? Is it every dream you've ever had coming true? It's not, is it? No, it's the basic needs of your life. This is not prosperity gospel. Don't pull verse 33 out of context and say, God is obligated to give me everything I want. This is what you need. And he says, if you will do this, I will do this. If you'll seek me first, if you'll make me the priority of your life, if you'll seek my kingdom, Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you'll live for the kingdom, if you'll live out that prayer, if you'll seek me in all that you do, if you'll seek my righteousness, that sanctification righteousness, That's obedience to the word of God and the will of God. If you'll seek my will, if you'll seek my word, if you'll live under my authority, if you'll submit yourself to me, if you'll follow my book, if you'll do the things I say to do and don't do the things I say not to do and trust me every step of the way, if you will trust and obey, all of these things will be incrementally added to your life. Listen, it's not a lump sum payment. God's not going to open heaven's gates and just pour unspeakable wealth on you. The word added here means incrementally added. Added as you need it added. And it takes us right back to the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. This is daily dependence on God to incrementally add what I need when I need it. This is a walk of faith. This is how you trust God. This is what it looks like. See, our Father meets our needs. And if you start playing the what-if game and what-about game, then that's really just showing little faith. Just trust it. Just believe it. The Father meets our needs. What Jesus is saying here is instead of living... Listen, instead of living the practical atheism of verse 31, instead of living the practical atheism of verse 31, Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Live by faith. Walk in obedience, and God will provide. That's the promise. That is the promise. Now, if you will step back and consider everything that verse 33 includes. I mean, we can spend a lot of time on verse 33. We don't have it, but it says, Seek first His kingdom, His reign, His realm. Seek His righteousness. If you will just consider all that that will include, you will quickly realize that it includes the means by which God normally provides for His children. Verse 33 includes being diligent at your job and at home. Verse 33 includes frugality, living on less than you make. Verse 33 includes not being lazy, not having an entitlement welfare mentality, not being a person who only lives for themselves. Verse 33 includes saving. It includes planning. It includes giving. It includes holding our material resources loosely. Verse 33 is all that the Bible has to say about the life of faith. Seek first His kingdom. Seek His righteousness. Seek His will. All these things will be added to you. In other words, he's not saying or commending a life of laziness, is he? He's not saying don't go to work, don't sow, don't reap and don't store and God will just take care. That's not what he's saying. He is saying these are the normal means by which God provides right here in verse 33. And what's really awesome is when those normal means don't work or for whatever reason God chooses are not going to meet the need, then he has his extraordinary means. (laughs) Like... Manna and quail and water from a rock and clothes that didn't wear out for 40 years. And like when Barnabas sold a piece of property to meet the needs of the body of Christ. See, God has His normal means, get up and go to work. And God has His extraordinary means, and it's all at His disposal. I think what this is saying, this seventh reason, because our Father meets our needs. I think what He's saying is basically this. Food, drink, and clothing will take care of themselves if you put God first in all things. Put God first in all things. Store up treasures in heaven. Live for Him. And He will take care of the rest. Reason number eight. We finally made it. Number eight. Eight is enough. But I think eight might be the most important. It might be. I don't know. Seven and eight are right there together. It's verse 34. And I want to beg you for attention span until we finish right here. Reason number eight is this because worry prevents living. Listen, worry prevents living in the moment. Worry prevents living in the moment. Look at verse 34. And let's do this right now. Let's live in the moment, all right? Don't worry about what's going to happen next. Live in the moment. Verse 34, so do not be worried about, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble, has enough evil, has enough challenges, has enough problems of its own. What verse 34 is saying is that worry prevents living in the moment. Tomorrow will worry for itself. Today has sufficient troubles to keep us occupied. Be faithful today, not obsessed with tomorrow. I cannot overstate the importance of this final reason not to worry. You see, worry always steps into the future and starts playing the what-if game. What if this happens? What if that happens? It can happen even as you're driving in a moment or it can be ten years from now, but worry is always future-oriented and prevents us from living in the moment. We start playing the what-if game. We start playing God, actually. We start prying into God's secret counsel, His knowledge of the future, instead of living in the moment. Instead of being a creature under my Heavenly Father. I have no business living in the future. I don't know the future. I can't go there. I live in the moment. Now we know from the rest of Scripture that planning is okay and required. And looking ahead is part of being human. Animals don't look ahead. We look ahead. Okay? We're not talking about that. We're talking about being consumed with looking ahead. We're talking about being fretful of the future. Plan, yes. Worry, no. See, don't be so consumed with tomorrow that you fail to serve God today. Right? Don't be so consumed about the troubles of tomorrow that you don't do, verse 33, in the here and now. That's the point. This is so critical. This is so freeing. This is the key right here. I mean, I ask you, don't you have enough challenges today? Don't you have enough today? Self-care, soul care, your work, your chores, laundry, dishes, your house, your kids, your car, your yard, your sleep, food, exercise, your spouse, your neighbor. Don't you have enough challenges today? How can we possibly have time and energy to worry about tomorrow if we're taking care of our business today? That's what this is saying. If we will take care of our daily business, we'll have no business living in the future. We'll have no energy for that. We might say it this way, the diligent don't have time for nervous breakdowns. (laughs) I just don't have time to fall apart. I'm too busy taking care of today with its troubles and challenges and issues. In fact, it is amazing how taking care of today actually eliminates problems tomorrow. Take care of your business and you won't have that worry of the future. Let me give you some examples. Your car is one. I say to my kids, take care of your car and your car will take care of you. kids they just think this stuff happens by itself because dad always did it but now they don't live with dad anymore you got to change that oil you got to rotate those tires you got to take care of your car and it'll take care of you can it still break down brand new car can break down of course it can I'm just talking about the normal things of life it's amazing if you'll take care of your car then you won't have to have that worry in the future another one is our bodies our bodies even a better example I would say to you, don't worry about your health. Pursue it. Don't sit around and fret about health. Go get it. How do you get it? Exercise, sleep, and diet. God has ordained the means by which we are to normally be healthy. And what we're doing is worrying about being healthy instead of being healthy. (laughs) And so if we'll just be healthy, we won't have to worry about most of this stuff. Right? Exercise, sleep, and food. That's God's ordained means to pursue health. I'll give you another one. Your marriage. Instead of sitting around worried about your marriage, fretting about your marriage, is my marriage going to last? Is my marriage going to be good? Is my marriage going to survive? Don't live like that. That's not how to live. Instead, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Nourish her, cherish her, pray for her, sanctify her with the word. Love your wives. Don't worry about whether you're going to stay married. And wives, submit to your husbands and respect him as to the Lord. And then trust God. You see, we complicate things. See, we don't, we live in the future. Live in the moment. What does God tell me to do? I'm just going to do this one thing and I'm going to trust Him with the results. Am I going to play God here? Am I going to pry into His secret sovereignty? Here's the reality. Listen to me now. The sin of worry tries to pull us into the future so that we neglect the present, which makes our worries come true. You reap what you sow. In fact, many problems, I don't know, it might be most of our problems, are the result of neglect. Most of our problems are self-inflicted. We reap what we sow. We live outside the moment. Christian, live in the moment. Live in the moment. Not anxious about the future, because you trust the one who holds the future. And you're, frankly, too busy seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Verse 33 is the cure. If I get so sold out to seeking His kingdom and His righteousness, who has time and energy to sit around and fret? I don't, because I'm next door checking on my neighbor. And their frets, and their concerns. Live in the moment, and you won't lose sleep over your government, over politics, CNN, the economy. Social Security, Medicare, tax rates, China, Russia, Syria, North Korea, Ukraine, impeachment, or whether we're going to be persecuted or not. Frankly, who cares about all that stuff ultimately? I'm living in the moment, seeking His kingdom, seeking His righteousness. God will take care of my needs. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about how your kids will turn out. Live in the moment. Invest in them. Spend time with them. Play with them. Pray with them. Care for them. Don't worry about them. Invest in them. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And let God take care of the rest. Don't worry about your retirement. Live in the moment. Go to work. Live on less than you make. Tighten the belt. Get a second job. Be diligent. Be vigilant. Plan for it. Don't worry about it. God will take care of your needs. You're a child of God, which means you're going to be in His family till you make your exit. See, here are eight reasons not to worry that when we embrace them, actually cure worry because you have no reason to worry. In fact, you have eight reasons not to worry. What a glorious passage. Birds and grass and flowers, the contrast with unbelievers, the priority of our life of verse 33 and Jesus is taking away all of these burdens of this complex life we live and says live in the moment. I was also reminded of the gospel from this passage. I was reminded of the gospel. It's interesting, isn't it? Mankind worries about food and Jesus is the bread of life. And we stress out over water and Jesus is living water. And we can't add one moment to our life, but Jesus can add eternal life in the place of our spiritual death. And in our pride, we spin the threads of good deeds to clothe our shame and our guilt while God stands ready to clothe us in a robe of righteousness created by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, if you will believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in Him, if you will trust the bread of life, the living water, the one who gives the gift of eternal life, the one who clothes you in His righteousness, not your own, if you will quit trying to earn your favor with God and receive the free gift of salvation, He will give it. Come to Him in faith. I ask you today, do you know Him? Do you know the bread of life? Do you know the living water? Do you know that one who gives a robe of righteousness? Do you know Him? Cultivate faithfulness in Him. If you know Him, God is your Father. God is your Heavenly Father and everything is going to be just fine. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for these eight reasons not to worry. Ultimately, there's one reason not to worry and it's You. If we look at our world, if we look at our flesh, if we look at our hearts, we see nothing but a multiplication of worries and anxieties. Help us to look up. Help us to look with eyes of faith. Help us to practice what we've heard this morning. May we seek first your righteousness. May we seek first your kingdom, not our own. And trust that you will provide all that we need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.